The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. All the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. My name is Mark. I'm on staff here. I don't know you're all thinking the same thing, so I'll just go ahead and answer it. Uh, Yes, I did get a haircut last week, and I'm glad you noticed. (laughs) Uh, No, I got in a nasty mountain bike wreck and broke my thumb and had surgery a couple days ago, so... This is really fun, and I think it made it very large, just so they could, everybody could see it. Uh, one more push to come to the Lament service tonight. Uh, that was one of the first services we came to about two years ago, and it is a beautiful service. I mean, at worst, if it's really weird, you, cut, you get to come and worship people with other people for an hour. At best, it just unlocks something in our cold hearts, and we can use this gift of lament that God has given to us. So I'd really encourage you to come back tonight at 530 to that service. Uh, In our passage this morning, which is only four verses, might be the shortest passage we've ever preached on. I know our readers were really excited about that today. Uh, We see the Apostle Paul continuing his mission to go and spread the gospel and tell people about Jesus. He's been traveling around for years at this point, like 15 to 20 years after his conversion, uh, going to Jewish synagogues, going to the marketplaces, telling people about Jesus. He'll come to a city, and when God does a work in people's hearts, Uh, Leading them to follow Jesus, Paul appoints elders and deacons, and he plants a church. He stays with them a while, and then he moves on to the next city. And it's an incredibly exciting time. I'm sure, too, for Paul to kind of see the lights go on in people's minds for the first time as they hear the true story of the universe. Uh, To hear about the God who made everything and how we broke our relationship with God, we broke his good creation when we went against God. People know that we live in a fallen world. Like I don't think anybody's going to argue that this world is crummy and broken. Uh, But to hear why this world is broken and why we long for a world without sin and sorrow, it's because that's what we were made for. And that's what we have coming for us in Jesus Christ. Uh, But then to be told that this creator God loves his creation, his people so much that Jesus would come in flesh and redeem his people by laying down his life in their place, uh, that Jesus would purchase them. And that whoever follows Jesus is brought into the family of God, and you have a place in this restored creation. Uh, Paul has devoted his life to telling people this good news. And sometimes it goes well, and people receive it. Uh, Other times it goes poorly, and they beat him up, or they chase him out of town. They put him in prison. His ship wrecks several times. Um, He's mocked for being this kind of prestigious Jewish leader, the Pharisee, that he left all that to basically go be poor and homeless and wander around the world so that other people could be brought into the family of God. And as he's doing that, as we saw in our passage, Paul is working. He's making tents. Uh, And what we're going to do this morning, we're going to zoom out a little bit and just look at the question, what is work? Like, how should we view work? How does God view work? What's our relationship with work? And what I want to pitch at you this morning is that without a biblical view of work, we will either think way too highly of work and it'll crush us, or we'll think way too lowly of it, and we won't be able to enjoy it and have this fulfillment that God has given us through work. Uh, This is not just for those who have a nine to five. If you are a student, that is your work. If you're a stay-at-home mom or dad, that is your work. 
If you're retired and you're taking care of a house or somebody else, parents or grandkids, that is your work. You're serving your community, that's your work. The Bible has a very broad umbrella for things that work falls under. Uh, so with that, let me pray for us and then we'll jump in. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in a world where everything seems up for grabs and is constantly changing, uh, you remain true and unfixed. Your word remains true. We thank you for giving it to us so that we can see you clearly and see ourselves clearly. We pray that you would do just that. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, there's a well-known story I read a few years ago. I don't think it's a story. I think it's just a parable, um, but it's fantastic. It's about an American investment banker meeting up with a fisherman from Mexico. And the story goes that uh, the American was on vacation in this small coastal village. And as he was standing on the dock, uh, this small fishing boat comes in with just one fisherman. And he looks in the boat and he sees he's got this huge catch of all these big yellowfin tuna. And he looks at the fisherman and he says, hey, it looks like you had a great day out on the water. Uh, and the fisherman says, yeah, well, thanks. And he says, well, how long, how long were you, did it take you to catch all these fish? And the Mexican fisherman says, well, just a couple hours. Uh, and so the American kind of looks at his watch. He notices it's not that late. And he says, well, why aren't you, why aren't you still out there? Why, why aren't you catching more fish? And the fisherman says, well, this is enough to feed my family and provide for our needs. And the American asks him, he says, well, what do you do with the rest of your time? And the fisherman says, well, I sleep late. I fish a little. I play with my children. I take siestas with my wife. And I stroll into the village each evening where I sip wine and play guitar with my friends. I have a full and busy life. And the American kind of scoffs at him. He says, okay, I'm a Harvard MBA. I think I can help you. He says, you should spend more time fishing. And with the proceeds from that, you should buy a bigger boat. And with the proceeds from the bigger boat, you can buy several boats. And eventually you'd have a whole fleet of fishing boats. Instead of selling your catch to a middleman, you would sell directly to the processor, eventually opening up your own cannery. You would control the product, processing and distribution. You would need to leave this small coastal fishing village and move to Mexico City then L.A., and eventually to New York City, where you would run your expanding enterprise. And the fisherman asks, but how long will all this take? And the American says, about 15 to 20 years. But what then, asks the fisherman. The American laughs, and he says, that's the best part. When the time is right, you would announce an IPO and sell your company's stock to the public and become very rich. You would make millions. Millions, the fisherman says. Then what? And the American says, well, then you would retire you'd move to a small coastal fishing village where you would sleep late, fish a little, play with your kids, take siestas with your wife, and stroll into the evenings in the after, or stroll into the city where you would sip wine and play guitar with your friends in the evenings. Isn't that great? What's the point of that story? Uh, there's several. You know, be content with what you have. Have a clear driving force of why you're working so hard. Uh, don't waste 20 years of your life for something you don't necessarily need. I mean, just in this room, there are so many of y'all from so many different economic situations. A lot of your students, you're working towards a degree that you hope is going to get you that job that you're going to love. Uh, this is a young church, so a lot of y'all have been doing your job for a while now. You can kind of, you feel settled. You can kind of look ahead to the next 10 to 15 years. You think if I put in the hours and I progress and work hard, I'll get to that point over there. Some of you view work as something you just got to do for another 15 to 20 years so you can pay for your kid's college or your hobbies and then retire. Some of you just want a job or a different job as long as it pays enough. And I think it's safe to say that all of us at varying points throughout the week as we look at our work, we're kind of like a kid on a tire swing. 
right? They still have those, or those, those probably aren't very safe. Uh, but sometimes it's exhilarating. You love it. Other times you're bored, you want to get off of it. Sometimes you're having the time of your life. Other times you just want to puke. Uh, and you can love your job. You can love being a student or love being a stay-at-home parent or a retiree. And you can feel all those emotions in the span of like three hours. Is that fair? Is that just me? Uh, so how are we supposed to view work? Like what's a biblical theology of work? Think back to the first few pages of the Bible in Genesis, where it says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. You know, the point of that being that God created men and women in his image. Uh, and after God created the universe, he put Adam and Eve, Genesis 2.15 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. But here's what that means. God is a creator. God works. God made men and women in his image. Therefore, we work. We bear his image well when we work. Um, you have built into you this innate desire to work to organize, to bring order to chaos, to accomplish, to cultivate, to nurture, to build. And not only is it good to work, but you bear God's image well when you work. Uh, and the New Testament talks about this as well. I'll just share two verses, two passages. In Colossians 3, 23 through 24, Paul says, whatever you do, don't you just love that? Whatever type you do. In, in the New Testament, we see so many different jobs. We see soldiers, taxpayers. We see a lady who sells purple stuff. There's all kinds of things. It says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. And then he ends by saying, you are serving the Lord Christ. In other words, whatever your work is, do a good job at it because it's really Jesus that you're working for. Uh, in 2 Thessalonians 3, 10 through 12, Paul writes this to the church. He says, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Work is good uh, from a theological perspective and just from a very practical perspective that we need to work to make money, to feed ourselves and to take care of ourselves and whoever else depends on us. Uh, we need to work so we can be generous and so our community can flourish. For those of you who like fancy theological terms, you want to impress your friends and coworkers, uh, work is what's called a creation ordinance. It's something that God instituted before sin entered the world when he made creation. Uh, so in a perfect sinless world where God and man dwelled together, there was no fracture in our relationship, there was still work. Right? Adam and Eve were farmers before the world was broken before sin entered the world. Uh, marriage is a creation ordinance. Right? God told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply before sin entered the world. A day of rest is a creation ordinance, right? which means that not only is work good, but rest from that work is also good. Right? Genesis tells us that not only does God work, but on the seventh day, what does God do? He rests. So not only do you reflect God when you work, but you reflect God when you rest. Just let that sink in for a second. I hope all, everyone here experienced just a little bit of rest last Thursday when you spent a whole day cooking and preparing and cleaning and taking out the trash and discussing politics with your extended family. Uh, it's so restful, right? We need to do a whole sermon on rest. But for now, I just want you to answer this question in your mind. Do you ever stop 
Do you ever rest? Do you ever say this day, for the Christian we call it the Sabbath, this is the day that I intentionally lay down everything related to work and I rest. I I worship God with my church, I play, I tinker with a hobby, I go on a walk, I serve others. Do you ever stop? If you're here this morning, you're not sure what you believe about Jesus or the gospel, do you ever stop and rest from your work if for no other reason than to just remind yourself that you are not what you do? You are not your job. Uh, Look back at our passage this morning. And if you're visiting, we usually stick to the passage a lot more, but this is more of kind of a topical sermon on work. I'll just read the whole thing again. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, recently come from Italy with his wife, Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogues every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Paul's mission was to travel around and tell people about Jesus. And even though later on he devoted himself to full-time ministry, uh, and he wrote to his church plants that they needed to financially support their elders who taught, right, their pastors. Um, John Riley, the guy who was up here who did the announcement so well, he needs to do this again. Uh, he's a ruling elder. I'm a teaching elder. Um, so initially Paul did everything he could to remove any barriers or any suspicion that he was just preaching this gospel to make a bunch of money for himself. He didn't want there to be any idea of people saying, well, this, he's just made up this new religion so he can make a bunch of money off of it. So he worked a part-time job making and fixing people's tents. He's basically a traveling salesman for Coleman. And so when Priscilla and Aquila, they were kicked out of Rome, they landed in Corinth, and Paul met up with them, and he joined them in making tents. Uh, and we hear a good bit about Priscilla and Aquila throughout the rest of the New Testament. They're very prominent, busy people in the church. They, they do a lot. Um, and it's telling that whenever we think about Paul and Priscilla and Aquila, uh, the first thing that comes to our mind is not typically... Oh, yeah, the tent makers, right? Because as necessary as it was for those three to make a good tent and sell it at a fair price, their identity wasn't wrapped up in their work. All right, They were first and foremost followers of Jesus who wanted others to follow Jesus. Their work was always secondary to their identity in Christ. Which, to be clear, is not God telling you to be mediocre in your work or just do the bare minimum so that you could kind of get by. Uh, working as though Jesus were your boss will actually make you work harder and better. You'll be a better employee. Uh, There's an article I've referenced before by a lady named Dorothy Sayers. She was a friend of C.S. Lewis in the 40s and 50s, uh, and she was a great writer. And a lot of her stuff is kind of constructive criticism of the church. It's kind of, it's pretty incisive. Um, And even though it was written in the 40s and 50s, it's very relevant. And in the article, she was lamenting the fact that we've kind of elevated sacred work, which anything that kind of religious work, anything that comes from the church or a missionary organization or nonprofit. She says we've elevated that above what she calls secular work, which is what most of y'all do if you don't work in a church or a missionary or mission organization. And I can quote the entire article because it's so good, but I'll just read you a pretty lengthy chunk. She says, In nothing has the church so lost her hold on reality as in her failure to understand and respect the secular vocation. She has allowed work and religion to become separate departments and is astonished to find that as a result, the secular work of the world is turned to purely selfish and destructive ends and that the greater part of the world's intelligent workers have become irreligious or at least uninterested in religion. But is it astonishing? 
How can anyone remain interested in a religion which seems to have no concern with nine-tenths of his life? The church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is this, this is so good, that the very first demand of his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. What use is good behavior if in the very center of his life and occupation he is insulting God with bad carpentry? No crooked table legs or ill-fitting drawers ever, I dare swear, came out of the carpenter's shop at Nazareth. Nor, if they did, could anyone believe that they were made by the same hand that made heaven and earth. And she closes with this. She says, The church has forgotten that the secular vocation is sacred, that the only Christian work is good work well done. It's good to tuck away. The only Christian work is good work well done. A biblical view of work says that doing good work is incredibly important, and it's vital not only to human flourishing, but it's vital to our evangelism. It's vital to us telling people about Jesus and them having a respect for that. But Scripture never comes close to you identifying your work uh, with who your identity is, right? Which is so different than us today, isn't it? What's, what's one of the first two questions you ask somebody when you first meet them? What do you do? What do you do for a living? Uh, and what we're really saying is, who are you? What have you accomplished? <laughs> uh, is that all we are as people who work? What if you have a career shift late in life? Are you somehow less the person that you used to be? Uh, what if you get fired? What if you get hurt and you can't do the work that you used to be so good at and you spent your whole life getting good at? What's your identity then? Where does your worth and your value come from? Paul was routinely kicked out of cities. He was constantly on the move. Priscilla and Aquila, they'd just been uprooted from their home in Rome, uh, and they all have to start over. And yet none of them seem to be having like an identity crisis, do they? None of them seem to be grieving the fact that they don't live in their downtown loft in Rome, kind of overseeing their outdoor equipment empire anymore. Uh, instead, we see in verse 4, it says they start making tents during the week, and on the Sabbath, Paul spends his time in the synagogues and the marketplaces, reasoning with anyone who would listen about how Jesus is the Savior that the Jewish people have been looking for for centuries. So two things happen if you buy into this lie that you are what you do, that your identity is part of, who, of your work. One, you'll always be busy. Uh, if your work defines you, you will always feel like you're wasting time if you're not working, if you're not getting ahead. Or even worse, you'll get angry with people who don't agree with you at your work or who get in your way. Right? You'll resent those who disagree with you. Uh, are any of you at odds with people in your work or at school? Is it because you feel like they're kind of in your way or keeping you from going where you need to be? And even though we hate how busy we are, we kind of like it, don't we? Because it gives us something to kind of hang our hat on and say, well, at least I'm not wasting my life. At least I'm doing something meaningful if I'm working, working, working. So one, you'll always be busy, and two, you won't be able to stop. You won't be able to rest if you are what you do. Something even God himself does and commands us to do is rest. Put down your tools, put down your spreadsheet, put down your phone, turn off your brain from thinking about all those problems you've got to solve. Plan ahead so that on Sunday night you're not frantically scrambling trying to get prepared for Monday morning. If your identity is in your work, you won't be able to rest from it. If, however, who you are is grounded in the God who made you and who saved you, then your daily grind, that the work that you do, it can help you and others be what you are called to be, which is a child of God, 
first and foremost. If your work doesn't, you know, your worth doesn't rise and fall based on the success of your company or the title after your name and your email signature, then work can function as it's supposed to, as a means to reflect God and proclaim his goodness and his power to a watching, hurting world. Do you work in finance or insurance or construction or education or manufacturing, health care, lawn care, tech, the service industry, first responder, art, music, law, raising kids, whatever you do, work heartily because you're working for the Lord, not just your immediate boss and not just yourself. I'll end with this. I've been a pastor for about a decade. I love being a pastor. I really love being your pastor. Uh, it's not something I grew up wanting to do. Um, in fact, I went to seminary. I was a missionary in Peru for about a year, and it made me realize how little I knew. Um, and so I said, I want to go to seminary just to learn more. Um, and it wasn't until about two-thirds of the way through seminary that I felt called to be a pastor because I would have panic attacks talking in front of people. Like, this was not something I would come close to doing. Uh, but once I started preaching, God just made that fear of public speaking dissolve. And I took that as a pretty clear sign that he wanted me to go into pastoral ministry. So almost 10 years go by, and there's nothing I would rather do than preach and teach and bring the gospel and the truth of Jesus to bear in people's lives. Baptize and celebrate communion uh, and comfort people with the, with the gospel. About three years ago, I took a job at a church, and I thought this was just a dream job. I'll be there forever. Uh, about four months in, it turned into a nightmare, and it was horrible. It's easily the worst year of mine and Holly's lives. Um, I resigned, and I spent the next six months trying to figure out what I was going to do and who I was. It was a really dark place, not just because we were trying to find a job to get money, but I finally came to realize how much of my identity I was putting in being a pastor. Spoiler alert, all of it. I feel like my life has just come undone because I wasn't a pastor in a church. Um, long story short, I ended up working at a summer camp uh, and then at a teaching at a high school, and I loved it. Uh, God was so kind to surround me with incredible men and students at that school, and I just loved it. We started visiting Restoration two years ago, and it was so healing just getting to come and sit and worship. Uh, and I'm so thankful, as painful as it was, that God broke me from trying to find my identity and my job and what I was doing, even Christian work, uh, and having him show me that I'm not first and foremost a pastor. Uh, first and foremost, I am a child of God, bought by Jesus, adored by my Heavenly Father. And I hope I'm still a pastor here when I'm 60 at Restoration. Uh, but if something happens, if this church just crumbles or something happens to me, It'll hurt. It'll be painful. Uh, but I'll know that first and foremost, I am a child of God, purchased by Jesus, adored by my Heavenly Father. And so please consider this an invitation uh, to stop trying to achieve your own identity by your own efforts, by working hard, by doing the things you've got to do to, to, to progress. This is an invitation for you to receive an identity that can never be taken away from you. By Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, he has done the work of making you right with God. And follow Jesus. Put your confidence in him. Work, play, serve, whatever you do, do it first and foremost as a son or a daughter of God, because that is who you are in Christ. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for 
revealing to us that painful truth of who we are. Our identity outside of you uh, is a rebel, is an enemy of you. We don't want anything to do with you outside of your grace. And Lord, for those of us who you have changed our hearts and you've shown us the truth of the gospel, you've shown us our sin, and yet you have showed us the Savior you've provided. Uh, would you let our every action and thought be guided by who we are in Christ? Not by what we have done or what we haven't done, uh, but by what we have been given in Jesus and what is to come in this new heavens and new earth. We praise you for making all things new and including us, us in that. And would you use us, use this church as we filter out into our community and show others about this beautiful truth in Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. We praise you for making all things new and including us, us in that. And would you use us, use this church as we filter out into our community and show others about this beautiful truth in Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen.